Okay, well, so we'd like to welcome you back to our second and final part regarding this subject. Now, we're going to be talking now about the, the courts of heaven. And um, this is Robert Henderson. I think he's done more research on this subject than anybody I that exists on the world. He's wrote, written several books on this. The problem is, is he is in the whole Pentecostal camp, okay? Um, I'm, I'm going to just say, I've seen this work and I would say glean from this. I don't align myself with like, you know, a lot of his affiliations. I don't, I think he's a brilliant speaker. I think he conveys this subject in an incredibly concise, awesome way. I don't know why the Lord hasn't really shown him regarding some of these subjects like that we get into now maybe he has i don't know i'm not up to date on every single thing he's doing right now um but this is he's written several books he's got teachings online he's got there's a cd series that i'm playing part one of this disc here um and um his books are cheap you can go get them on ebay for you know, some of them are under 10 bucks. They're like booklets. And I believe the first one is accessing the courts of heaven or operating in the courts of heaven. It's just, and I haven't even got through the thing yet. Okay. Cause I'm so slammed with, with stuff a lot of times, it, but these are the only thing that I have really felt compelled outside of the Bible, as far as biblical things to actually focus on for probably the last, I don't know how many months. And then this happened with this teaching that you just heard. So I want to go ahead and start playing this because I'm afraid I'm going to run, I'm going to run out of time on this as well. Hey, I just want to begin to teach on operating in the courts of heaven. This is a principle that actually changed my life, changed our family. Uh, I've seen it affect cities, states, even nations. And uh, it is an understanding that the Lord is bringing to the body of Christ. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 1, Paul said that we are servants and stewards of the mysteries of God. And I believe that we're in a season and we're in a time where that the mysteries of God are beginning to be unveiled yes. for yes. The, impreg the impregnation of the ecclesia for this time and this season so that we as the church can accomplish everything that God wants us to accomplish. Now, isn't that what we just talked about in the first part? You know, and... And then what I talked about with Daniel, seal up, you know, the books until the time of the end. And that's where we're at. And then all of a sudden we, we're getting these different or new revelations that are biblical, but we just weren't really aware of them up until now. And we're going to need these extra tools to fight the forces of evil that are encroaching on every side, as we're seeing every day. It's revelations that be... Uh, coming to my spirit and God began to open it up from the word was was simply that when we pray when we step into the dimensions of heaven that we are not on a battlefield as much as we are in a courtroom setting so I want to begin to uh, try to lead us into these situations and help us understand uh, some of the process of actually getting our prayers answered uh, this teaching is is designed to go along with the book that's been written called operating in the courts of heaven 
And then the subtitle of the book is Granting God the Legal Right to Answer Our Prayers. Because his passion as father is always clear, is always correct, is always right. The problem is that he is not only father, if you will, but he is also God the judge. And the scripture says that he is the judge of all in Hebrews 12 and verse 23. So the point being is that many times God from his fatherhood desires to see restoration, desires to see life, desires to see healing, desires to see redemption and reconciliation come. But there's something legal that is resisting him. And that is, the, that is our job as, as individuals, but also as the body of Christ, as the ecclesia, to be able to grant God the legal right as judge to fulfill his father's passion. So I usually began by asking people, how many of you in this room have things that you are praying for presently and have been praying for for an extended period of time and yet, you've yet to see an answer come. You believe and understand by the Word of God that, it, that what you're asking for is in agreement with the will of God. It's in agreement with God's Word. It's something that very clearly you understand and we understand that God would want this thing to become reality in the world and in your life. And yet, it's not happened. And the point and the reason that it has not happened is because something legal is resisting you in the spirit realm. You see, one of the first things I began to understand is that everything is legal in the spirit realm. Now, to help us understand that, in Daniel chapter 10, we see a story of Daniel praying and fasting for 21 days. And the scripture says at the end of the prayer and the fasting for 21 days, that suddenly an angel showed up and he said to Daniel, Daniel, I heard you from the very first time that you prayed. We heard you. And But the prince of Persia, which was a demonic entity, a principality, it came to resist us and stop us from coming through with the answer. And finally, even Michael the archangel had to show up and help us get the thing broke through so that, that, that we, would, we would come with the answer. And this is a wonderful statement. It says, and Daniel, we have now come because of your words. So here's what I want you to understand. Daniel's words stirred up both heaven and and hell. See, I want you to hear that. See, Daniel's words stirred the angels of heaven. It stirred God on his throne so that there was an answer released. But his words also stirred up, if you will. It also stirred up the demonic to kind of to try to come and resist the answer from coming through. So Daniel's words created a conflict. Daniel's words created a conflict in the unseen realm, in the spirit realm. So that's very, very clear. And I, I love this statement. It says, we have now come because of yours. Now, notice also he said, we heard you from the very first day. So the lack of answers coming through was not a lack of movement. It was not a lack of, of, of heaven moving to answer Daniel's prayers. The problem was that there was a conflict that ensued because Daniel's words had engaged both heaven and hell. Now, here's the, here's the multi-million dollar question. Where is the conflict? Is the conflict that, was, that he was involved in and that we're involved in, is the conflict on a battlefield, a celestial battlefield in the unseen realm? Or is the conflict in a courtroom? You see, if you've ever been in a courtroom setting, realize that there is a very real conflict that's going on in a courtroom 
That's, that's important that there's a very real conflict going on in the courtroom, even though that conflict would be different from battle, battlefield. Now, most of us have been taught and have been led to believe and has, it has been implied to us that the battle or the conflict we're in in the spirit realm is a battlefield. We picture ourselves as being on a battlefield. But I'm here to tell you that I believe that Jesus is teaching us that the conflict we're in, at least initially, is a courtroom. Now, why is that important? Because the protocol of a battlefield and the protocol of a courtroom are completely different. In other words, if you try to behave yourself in a courtroom the way you behave yourself in a battlefield then there's going to be a major problem that's going to ensue. There's going to be a problem with the judge and with the authorities that are ruling that realm. So, so we have to discern, is the, is the conflict I'm in, is it on a battlefield or is it in a courtroom? Because if I am behaving myself as if I'm on a battlefield, when in reality I'm in a spiritual dimension in a courtroom, then I'm not going to get the answers that I'm looking for. Because one requires, if you will, brute force. The other require, requires legal wranglings that get legal things in place so God's will can be done. So that's a very, very important question. Now, to help us understand that further, let me explain something to you. When Jesus taught on prayer... I'm not talking about when he talked about casting out demons or any of these other things. I'm saying that when Jesus taught on prayer, when the disciples came to him and would say, Lord, teach us to pray. And there was, there's two places where that basically occurred in Scripture. In Scripture, Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11. And so whenever they said in, in Matthew chapter 6, teach us to pray, Jesus put prayer in, in, in Luke 11, he put prayer in two basic scenarios. He put prayer in a father-son relationship. He said that prayer was like a son approaching a father. He even said we should say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he said, which, which father of you would have a son or a child come and ask, uh, for a, a stone, and you would give, or excuse me, for bread, and you would give him a stone. Which child would come and ask for a fish, and you would give him a serpent? And the, the, and he said, how many of you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children? He said, if that's true, then how much more will the heavenly Father, who is so good in his nature, so good in his heart, so benevolent toward us, how much more will he give good things to those that ask him? So the point being is that when we pray, we are stepping into a father and son, a father and child relationship where that we are actually drawing from the benevolence of the father's heart that is always good toward us and desires to do us, do us good in all things. But then Jesus also said prayer was like a friend approaching a friend. Remember the parable where Jesus said uh, that whenever we pray, it's like a friend that had a friend come to him on a, on a journey. And this friend had to get up at night and he had nothing to give him. So he went to another friend and began to, if you will, beat on the door and try to awaken this other friend to get up and give him what he needed to take care of the friend that had come to him. And Jesus basically said this, even though he won't get, get up, and give him what he's asking because he's a friend, yet because, if you can hear it, he, he won't leave him alone and let him go back to bed. He'll finally get up and give him as much as he wants so that he can get it dealt with so he can go back to bed and go to sleep. 
But the bottom line to the whole parable is this. Jesus was putting prayer in a friendship scenario. He was, he was basically saying, when we pray, we are drawing from a friendship with God. Jesus, remember, Jesus said, you are no longer servants. I call you friends. He said, you're, you're stepping into a friendship with me. And you're drawing on that friendship relationship as we pray to, to ask heaven to respond to us. So when Jesus taught on prayer, he talked about a father-son relationship. He talked about it being a friendship. But I want you to notice, he never, ever, in the times he taught on prayer, put prayer in a battlefield. Ever. And yet, that's what we've been taught, is that when we pray, we are stepping into a battlefield. And yet, Jesus never put prayer on a battlefield. Could it be that some of our lack of results is because we have been approaching prayer from a battlefield mentality rather than approach, approaching prayer from the mentality and the, and, and the realms that God would have us to approach it? So, Jesus said prayer is a father and son, a father-child relationship in operation. It's a friendship operation. It's a friend with a friend. But watch this. So he never put prayer on the battlefield. But there's one more place that Jesus taught on prayer. And that is in Luke chapter 18 and verses 1 through 8. This is very important. Because even though Jesus did not put prayer on a battlefield, he did put prayer in a courtroom. You see, he taught on prayer in Matthew 6. He taught on prayer in Luke 11, but there's one more place he taught on prayer, and that's Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Here's what he said. It says, Jesus spoke this parable. Now, also remember what um, <clears throat> Diane was saying about it was so important to, like, if Jesus' words abide in you, you will ask what you will, you know, and, and just to look at the life of Jesus and, and to look at the way he operated in the earth. And that's what Robert is talking about here regarding... Um, all the times Jesus talked about prayer. Men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. And he said there was in a certain city an unjust judge. And a widow came before this unjust judge and said, Avenge me of my adversary or get justice for me. Now watch this. And it said he would not for a while. But afterwards he said, Look, even though I don't fear God nor regard man, I am going to give this widow what she wants, lest by her continual coming she wears me out. And verse 8 says this, Hear what the unjust judge says, and shall not God avenge or get justice for his own elect? Yes, I say, he will avenge them speedily. So Jesus put prayer into a courtroom setting. Now here's the big picture or the moral of the story to that teaching. That if this widow could get a verdict from an unjust judge, that, that she, had, she had no power, she had, it would seem a widow that had no influence, but, but because she knew how to go into a justice system, into a judicial system, she could get a verdict from an unjust judge, how much more can you and I, as the children of God, be able to step into the judicial system of heaven and have our petitions granted and our prayers answered from the righteous judge of all who is our Lord and who is our King? That's the moral of the story. So Jesus put prayer in a judicial system. That's really, really important. 
Because, because if we can grasp that, then all of a sudden, I can realize Jesus never taught prayer from a battlefield mentality. He taught prayer from a courtroom mentality. He said prayer is like petitioning a court. It's like petitioning a judge. I was quite, it was quite interesting because just a few weeks ago, um, one of my children was involved in a court case, and the lawyer that they had was, making, was, was presenting a petition to the court, and she had sent the papers that would be used that would be filed in the court. And it had several different sections, but the last section, the last section of the papers that would be filed in the court was actually called a prayer. That amazed me. And in, 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 in this prayer that was being presented before court, before, presented before a judge, it was what was being, it was the beseeching, it was the petition that was being presented before the court that they desired for the judge to grant in their behalf. And that was called a prayer. You see, when we pray, we are stepping into the legal system of heaven. Even our legal system sees prayer as something that is legal. So when we step into, when we begin to pray, we are stepping into the legal system of heaven and we are making our petitions before God for Him as judge to be able to grant and render verdicts in our behalf that allow those things to come to pass. You see, if we can get this, then all of a sudden it changes our perspective of what we're trying to accomplish in the spirit realm. And we are actually desiring and endeavoring to grant God the legal right as judge to fulfill his father's passion. Now you need to understand there's a very real court in heaven. We see this in many different places of scripture, but in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 10, the scripture talks about all the thrones that are, that are in heaven and, and there is, then there is the throne that is, that is there in heaven. And in Daniel chapter 10, chapter 7 and verse 10, it says, and the, and the books were open, or excuse me, and the court was seated and the books were open. At the very last part of that verse, the court was seated. So the throne of God and then the multiples of thrones around the throne and then all the hundreds and thousands and millions of people and all the heavenly cre creatures that we see in Revelation 4, all these entities, if you will, make up the court system of heaven. So when we pray, we are actually stepping into that dimension. You see, even though our feet is upon the carpet or upon the floor. In the spirit realm, we ascend into the holy hill of Zion and take our position in the courts of heaven and we have a right to make our petitions and ask for a legal rendering from God the judge of all to answer in our behalf. That's very important that we get that. So, so let me give you three basic things that went on here in Luke chapter 18. Three basic things that are spoken here. It's important that we see this because, because Jesus put prayer in a courtroom setting. So the first thing that I want you to see here out of Luke 18 is that Jesus basically was teaching that when we pray, we are stepping into a real judicial system in heaven. That's the first thing we need to see, that I am not stepping onto a battlefield. I am stepping into the judicial system of heaven. Why? Because Jesus pictured prayer with this woman as a woman that went before a judge. A judge is one who rules over a judicial system. 
And so whenever he put this, 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 this teaching on prayer in a judicial system, it wasn't by accident. He was wanting us to understand that when we pray, what we are seeking to do is grant God the legal right to render verdicts in our behalf. Now you have to understand something here. A judge that sets up on a throne cannot just make arbitrary decisions. In a real court system, a judge can only make decisions based upon the evidence that is presented to him. You see, you have to understand this. When we are in the courts of heaven, we must present God the legal right to render the verdicts in our behalf. And again, this really strikes at what um, Diane was saying in where the Holy Spirit was asking her, are you ready to submit the petitions? You're petitioning the courts of heaven. But see, you have to have a case to bring before the courts in order to petition them. And... <clears throat> You know, this is the very, very surface level, okay, of operating in the courts of heaven. You, you really need to get, like, his book, I would say, and um, operating in the courts. And I'm not, I'm not getting any money from telling you this, okay? I'm not, it's not like I'm trying to sell you a book or anything. Uh, and there are a lot of his videos online where he does go into this in greater depth. Um, I, I, I mean... I'm doing it all. I'm kind. I've kind of like when I get a chance. I'm listening to the CDs in my car, and sometimes I'll. I really find though I can't listen to them in the background if I'm working. It's just the information's too important. I find I've taken notes. I've I've highlighted the book that I got from him, but he's got like five other ones, other little booklets that get you into even greater detail. So, I mean. What I did is I bought every one of his little booklets, okay? It didn't cost a ton of money. And that way, if things go dark, and I don't have access to the internet anymore, or let's say the electronic devices, God forbid, are all fried from an EMP, you'll always have it in print, okay? And again, do as the Lord leads you. I'm not saying that, I just feel like he's done the best job as far as really breaking this down. To, to a degree where, I mean, I haven't even got through one-tenth of what the material he's got. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm st it's kind of a work in progress. Why would we need to do Because the scripture says in Revelation 12 and verse 10 that there is a very real accuser of the brethren who is accusing us before God day and night. In other words... And that word accuser, it, and we'll get to this later in some of the other teachings, that word accuser actually carries with it an idea of a complainant at law, a prosecutor, one that is resisting you on legal basis and legal reasons. So, so when it says he is accusing us before God, the idea is this, that whenever I come before the throne of God, and I give God and ask God for something that is in His in agreement with His will, that the accuser stands up and says, yes, but you cannot grant that to Him because I have this kind of a case or this kind of accusations against Him. You say, well, what, what kind of accusations could He bring that could stop God from rendering a verdict for me that He actually wants me to have? Well, that's a very good question. Ours, my own personal sin can give the enemy ammunition 
to bring accusation against me. If I have unrepented of sin, uh, the psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not be able to answer me. If I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not be able to answer me. Why? Because the devil will say to the Lord, he has these undealt with issues in his life, and I am resisting him and accusing him on the basis of his own sin. So I have to repent of my sin. I have to repent and say, Lord, forgive me, cleanse me, wash me, purify me. That the blood of Jesus, if you will, answer in my behalf. Because Revelation 12 verse 11 says, it says, verse 10 says, the accuser of the brethren is accusing us. Verse 11 says, but we overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and we love not our life with the death. We'll get more into this. Hebrews 12, 24 says that there is a blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. In other words, there is a blood, the blood of Jesus, that is speaking in our behalf in the courts of heaven. And when I learn how to come into an agreement with the blood, that blood will answer every accusation that the enemy is thrusting toward me and take it out of the way so that God now has the legal right to answer my prayers. So the first thing that he uses to resist me with is my own sin. The second thing he, that he can use is the sin of my bloodline. You say, well, how can the enemy use the sin of my bloodline? And what is that? It is sins that have been committed by my ancestry and by those in my history. In other words, those that have committed sins and especially when they have made covenants with demonic gods that allows that demonic god to now say, watch this, they belong to me and not you. Because they made sacrifice to me. And especially when there was innocent bloodshed involved, they made sacrifice to me. So I have a legal right to resist them. You say, well, that can't be. Oh, really? Well, in Nehemiah's day, Hezekiah's day, and all those that were involved in seeking for God to bring restoration to Israel, when they began to pray, they re always repented for their sins and the sins of their fathers. Now, why did they repent for the sins of their fathers? They weren't trying to, to. They weren't in some purgatory. They weren't trying to get them out of some holding place. No, see, because the fathers' own personal lives had determined what their eternal status was. They weren't trying to change their father's eternal status. No, they understood our fathers sinned. Our fathers made covenants with demonic gods other than Jehovah. And those covenants with demonic gods and the sins of our forefathers are now legal things that Satan is using to presently hold us in captivity. And if we're going to come out of captivity, we're going to have to deal with the thing that put us here in the first place, which is, the, is not just our own personal sin, but the sin of our fathers. So what would they do? They would repent for their sins and the sins of their fathers. Why? Because they were, they were literally seeking to take away the accusation that the enemy was using in the courts of heaven. You see, so often, guys, so often, the reason we are not getting our prayers answered, the reason we are not seeing breakthrough, is not because of my own sin. It's because of a sin in my history. 
a sin in my ancestry that I need to go back and I need to repent before the Lord and say, God, I repent not just for my sins, but also for the sins of my heritage. And I ask for the, watch this, the blood of Jesus to deal with this and take this out of the way. I have a right as, as, from my position connected to my history. I have a right to repent for the sins. Now, that doesn't change the eternal status of my fathers, if you will. What it does is it takes away the legal right of the enemy to presently hold me and my lineage to come in captivity. There's a third thing that he could use. Even the motives of our heart come under scrutiny in the courts of heaven. Remember when Job, uh, in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, the Bible says that, that God is upon his throne and there came a day when all the sons of God, the, in the word uh, their God is Elohim, which is the idea of all the created beings, both the demonic realm and the angelic realm, they are all summoned to come before God. And the scripture says that Satan also came among them. Why did he come among them? Because he's one of them. And whenever he comes among them, the Bible says that God looks at him and says, Where have you been? And he said, From going to and fro and walking back and forth. So that's really interesting. Because in Ezekiel chapter 28, whenever before Satan has been thrown out of heaven, and he is uh, Lucifer in the courts of heaven, the Bible says that he walked back and forth upon the fiery stones. You see, he was a part of of the court system of heaven. And then you fast forward to 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. And the scripture says that Satan goes back, he, the Bible says he goes to and fro uh, as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And it's interesting because in that scripture, it says, it says that he is our adversary and that word adversary is the same Greek word for accuser or complainant at law. In other words, he is going backwards and forwards to and fro looking for a reason to devour, looking for a legal reason to devour. You see, he can't just do what he wants. He has to find a legal reason to do it. So the idea of going back and forwards and to and fro it's the idea of he is circulating and he is gathering evidence against us to build a case. So when God says to Satan, where have you been? He said, I've been doing what I do. I've been building cases against those that would ask you for things. And notice what God says. He said, have you considered my servant Job? In essence, he was saying, do you have a case against Job? And the only thing the enemy could bring about, because Job was a righteous man who eschewed evil, was this. Job only serves you because you put a hedge about him. Take the hedge away, and he won't serve you anymore. Now, that's really important. See, what did Satan accuse Job of? He accused Job of serving God with impure and improper motives. You see, even our motives come under scrutiny from the accuser. So we have to say, Lord, purify my heart. Cleanse me. Take away any evil, any iniquity, even in the motive of my heart. Don't just let me do what's right, but let me do what's because right. Because see, Satan can bring any of these accusations before you. 
So one of the things, and I don't know if he gets into it in this study, but one of the things he typically does, the Bible talks about where it says, agree with your adversary quickly. When you go into the courtroom system, one of the things that I think he does a lot of the times is he agrees with the adversary quickly. But then what he does is he says, I, I um, let the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ speak on my behalf which silences the voice of the adversary. You've agreed with him quickly, like the Bible said, and then you, um, the, the blood of the, um, the, the voice of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking on your behalf, okay? Because you don't want to go in there in the court system under your own righteousness. You want it to be like the righteousness of Christ, okay? But now, granted, you can't go in there and, and be like, you know, laden with sin and stuff like that and have, you know, that's not going to work that way. You want to be purified before you go into the courtroom setting. In other words, now I'm getting ahead of myself here. There's a lot to this. I'm not even an expert on it. Um, I'm just trying to get this to you as quickly as I can so that you can actually start doing this and operating in, in this system. Fight reasons because the it's looking for a reason to accuse me before God so that God cannot, as judge, legally fulfill his father's passion because he has to have evidence presented to him. So, so whenever I come before the Lord, I just say, Lord, just purify everything about me. Let me be a man of holiness. Let me be a man of righteousness. Let me be set aside and set apart unto you because when i pray i am stepping into a very real judicial system of heaven yes that's the first point i want to make and the enemy is using to resist or using accusations to resist us number two and this is an important one i want you to notice that when this woman began to petition the court in luke 18 she never addressed her adversary she only addressed the judge yes she never addressed her adversary. She only addressed the judge. Now, we're so quick to run and say, I, re I rebuke you, Satan. Yes. I bind you. <laughs> I, I... And then if it, depending on what denomination you're in, you start bringing all these railing accusations against Satan. You, you're so stupid. I'll crush your head under my head. There's no Bible for that, guys. The Bible says that... Um, that um, uh, the the mark the the archangel when he was contending with the body of Moses brought not forth a railing accusation against Satan, though he's greater in power than us. Okay, when they were disputing about the body of Moses, when Satan and I believe Michael were disputing about the body of Moses, he did not bring an angel a railing accusation before Satan, and he's higher than us. Okay, so we're not to do that either. But he simply said, "The Lord rebuke you." Now, how did Jesus handle it? He didn't either. He basically just quoted scripture back to Satan. Now that's the creator of the universe that did that. He quoted scripture back to Satan. So you want to, like, this is why you can get in trouble trying to access the courts if you're out of order. It'd be like if you were an attorney and you go in there in flip-flops and cut off shorts and a, you know, a, uh, like a t-shirt and, and you're acting all out of order, you're going that you could get your clock cleaned okay so this is very serious at the same time you just don't go in there half cocked you, you want to have all your and this is why I'm, I'm doing this teaching today so that you know you can start ramping up in in studying this and getting yourself to a point 
where um, you're able to access the courts. Because the sooner the remnant gets on this, and I'm going to be too, but the sooner we get on this, the sooner God's righteous judgments start to, um, um, are in the earth, then the sooner we're going to start seeing amazing, amazing things start happening in God's intervention. He's waiting on us to do this according to that. And I, I believe he is. I, I mean, I got convicted about this the first time I ever heard this. And um, it's ne that conviction has never went away. It's, and then now all of a sudden I get all this further confirmation. I do all these things. I open. I do all these kind of things. But this woman did, did, did none of that as recorded in this parable. The scripture says that she only addressed the judge. Now, why is that important? Because, because she addressed the judge because she understood that a verdict from the judge would make her adversary of no consequence. Of no consequence. She understood it would do me no good to rebuke the devil to rebuke the adversary, right. to stand against my enemy, if the judge hasn't rendered a verdict right. that says that what he is doing is illegal. Now, please hear me. That's on a personal level, but that's also when we're dealing with cities, states, and nations. When we're dealing with cities, states, and nations, you need to understand, principalities can only rule regions because they have found a legal right to do so. They are ruling and they have a legal right to do so based on the sins, our sins and the sins of our history, the sins of our ancestry. And if we're going to take the legal right of the enemy away, we have to silence the voices in the court that, that, is, is, that is building cases against us. And we have to silence them by the blood of Jesus and other means so that God now has a legal right to render judgments against those things that are resisting us mm. if we can get that we can change life on the planet yes and we can get our prayers answered you see in revelation 9 this is planetary changing stuff guys i mean planetary this is like moving into the realm of who knows how many people are going to get saved? Who knows how much God's name is going to be glorified? Who knows how many plans of the enemy are going to be destroyed? I mean, this is like, like moving from, if, if you're using a, uh, I don't know, like a, a shovel to like an earth mover, as far as, far as the, is the type of results that you could uh, conceivably start seeing as a result of, of, of operating this way. The scripture says that Jesus is coming back and he will, among other things, judge and make war. Notice the order. See, to judge speaks of judicial activity. To make war is the battlefield. But even Jesus does not make war until judicial things have been put into place. See, persevering prayer is today. I, I, by the Holy Spirit, recognize that this is the accusation the enemy is using to stop God from answering my prayers. So I take the blood of Jesus and I answer those accusations. And then tomorrow, there's another accusation that he's using because in a court, there's usually more than one accusation that's being brought to resist 
if you will, the will of God. So tomorrow there's another accusation, so I deal with that. And the next day there's another accusation, and then there's another one, until finally I have answered every accusation by the blood of the Lamb. And as I have answered every accusation, and those accusations and those voices have been silenced, now there is no more evidence being presented that would resist God as judge from fulfilling His Father's passion and answering my prayers. What happens as a result? Answers come speedily. Answers that have been resisted. Answers that have not shown up right. suddenly are seen and are known. Why? Because we, we have now seen things set in place legally that allows God to answer the cries of our heart. That's really, really important that we understand this. See, when, I'll just put it to you this way. When there is no answer, it's because something is still resisting us legally. We don't probably need to yell and scream at the devil. Or even perhaps to bind and loose or open and shut. We need to let the Holy Spirit bring understanding to us and what is yet resisting us in the courts of heaven so that we can, through our priesthood, legally get things in place so that we can then step into our kingship and make decrees that heaven will honor and things will move into the order of heaven and God's answers will come to us. Now we're going to continue to talk... I remember I had a... Uh... A friend back in Florida and um, she was of like a Pentecostal charismatic type person I do believe she heard from God um, I believe she loved the Lord and never had any doubt on that but you know I go in there and she'd have the um, you know Christian broadcasting network playing 24-7 and she thought that was a good thing you know, Benny Hinn and in the whole nine yards, all the all the false television. And I tried to warn her. I tried. Didn't matter. Didn't work. Um uh, well I have never ever saw anybody toil in prayer. And I mean, she would you know, she called me and I don't think she was lying about any of this, but it wasn't like she was proclaiming it from the mountaintops, but she yeah, I was up all night travailing in prayer basically wrestling with the devil type of thing and barely got any kind of breakthrough if she got any results at all. and this was just her life every single day and i just got i i know there was probably a lot of maybe generational things possibly in her bloodline he talks about that in subsequent teachings he's not going to talk a lot about that here i think in part one but Generational things in your bloodline can be things that are hindering your prayers, and you've never known about any of it. And it can, it, and it can, it can greatly hinder your access to the courts of heaven. And this is why I'm saying that first part I just played you. Don't, don't just go by that. The, the, you need to learn this, this, this information because there's a lot to it. I haven't even scratched the surface. Like I said, I probably went through maybe one tenth. But I've still seen results off of what I do know and on the, on the times I have went. But I just got a feeling that I'm just getting cranked up with this. But man, Barbara was just, I mean, I never saw anything like it. She would pray. She was a dedicated intercessor. But she got almost next to zero results. 
most of the time. I mean, she would get in these things where, I mean, dark entities were coming into the house and, I mean, just about killing her uh, all the time. And I guess she just, she got to a point where I just felt, she thought it was normal, you know? And, and I'm like, I'm not better than you, Barbara, but man, my life is not that way at all. I mean, it's not where I'm just barely escaping Satan constantly and, and just barely not even really getting any victories at all. And that was just her normal, normal life. And I think a lot of it was having TB on, TBN on 24-7 in the house, you know, embracing a lot of probably false, man-centered religious beliefs as a result of having TBN on, probably a lot of maybe generational curses that had not been broken or dealt with. Uh, he gets a lot in, into this in the books, things that can hinder it. But, you know, you might know people like that as well. And it's and it's and normally they're of a Pentecostal or charismatic bent. And, you know, I had kind of come out of that at that point uh, when I when I knew her. And um, she was a blessing to me. I lost track of her when, when we got up here. And, and, um, and I think there were some pride issues. You know, it was one of those things where she was kind of a woman of the house and kind of acting in the capacity almost of a pastor of, of her little family that she had. And, and I, I get it. I understand there wasn't a man around, but um, there was no headship there. And it was just, it was kind of a mess. And I've seen that so that same dynamic so many times with people that are in the charismatic movement in particular. It's, you know, I've had a lot of friends there, been in it, done it. You've heard a lot of my testimonies on that. If you listen to my previous teachings. But um, it, it can be a real mess being in that. So let's go further. And how to step into this. But let me pray for you. Father, I take authority over every power of the darkness that would try to bring confusion. And I say, Lord, in the place of confusion is the spirit of wisdom and revelation that empowers us to deal with everything legal that needs to be dealt with and then to step into our place of authority and make decrees that heaven backs up. I say, Lord, that answers are on the way and that which has not happened is beginning to happen even now and breakthroughs are being seen in Jesus' name. Lord bless you. We're going to continue today to uh, delve into the teaching on the courts of heaven. The courts of heaven have the ability to change our life because you need to understand that if there is if there's no answer coming from heaven, it's because something legal is resisting us in the spirit realm. You see, so, so often we think that prayer is having to convince God, but in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said that he knows what we have need of, the Father knows what we have need of before we ask. What that means is that prayer is not informing God of our need, nor is prayer convincing God to meet our needs. In other words, sometimes we think we've got to do all sorts of spiritual things to get God to answer our prayers, either to convince Him or to inform Him. But Jesus said that is not prayer. You see, in fact, Prayer is operating with God, cooperating with God, agreeing with God so that we grant him the legal right as judge to fulfill his father's passion. And if we begin to grasp that, then we will realize that any time we sense 
resistance against our prayers. It is not that we're on a battlefield. It's that the resistance and the conflict that we're sensing is in the courtroom. If I have been praying for something for an extended period of time, and I realize that the answer isn't coming, or I sense resistance, I now know it's a courtroom situation, not a battlefield one. And so my manner of operation, my means of operation, is completely different from what it used to be. And we began to see answers come. Now, let me help you with this, because I, I, it, 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 it helped me whenever we saw this. The, the first time I personally ever stepped into a courtroom setting, if you will, in the spirit realm, was I had been praying for one of my sons for a two-year period. My son, one of our sons, was caught up in depression because of some things that had happened in his personal life and some different things. He had been in the ministry, had not been able or had, had left the ministry because of some of the situations. Now, he wasn't kicked out or anything. He voluntarily left. He felt unworthy. He felt like he could never measure up again. And I had told him that's not true. God loves him. And, and the things that were done were not his fault. And, and all these sorts of things because there were some family issues involved. But it didn't matter what I told him. He was still caught up for a two-year period in a very deep sense of depression. And so as this was going on, uh, I would pray for him every day. And most of my time I was weeping, I was crying, sometimes I was warring, I was binding, I was loosening, loosing, I was opening, I was shutting. I was doing everything that I understood to do. And this went on for two years and nothing changed. Nothing changed. And I knew that his destiny was in danger of being forfeited. Now, this is a child, this is a son that when he was born, you know, 27 years before, and I had heard the Lord say to me, how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. And I knew that day, the day he was born, that God had called him to the ministry, and he would be one that would run with the word of the Lord. And sure enough, we took him to the dedication time just a few days later, and our pastor lifted him up. I had not said a word to anybody, including his mother, and the pastor lifted him up, and the first words out of his mouth were, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. And I went to our pastor afterwards. I said, Why did you say that? And he said, Because that's what God says about him. And I, I mean, it was, it was so completely uh, a total confirmation that this was his destiny. And he had began to live that out in ministry before these other situations that had occurred that had now thrust him into this position of great depression. So I've been praying for him for two years and no change. And so one day I go back to pray one more time because my attitude in prayer at that point was you got to just keep going. you got to just keep pushing. you got to just keep pressing. And if it's not moving, then you need to use more brute force because after all, we're on a battlefield. And I heard the Lord say these words this particular morning. I began to bring Adam before him. I began to lift him up. And I heard the Lord say, bring him to my courtroom. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't really exactly know how to do that, even though I began to see something. Now, you have to understand that he's... Remember how I said the books are being unsealed? Like what talks about in Daniel? I think he was one of the first ones that the Lord spoke to about this. Now, I could be wrong. Maybe that maybe God's been saying this to people for a long time. But we need this new, it's not new because it's always been there. But we need to know how to operate in this system in order to um, have victory, I believe, 
with the darkness that we're moving into. And he was one of the first, I believe, that was shown this. And then he went on to write these, these books, and I think it's the focus of his ministry. Pretty sure it is. So, anyway, I just thought that was kind of cool because he was one of the first ones that, that the, I believe the Lord's shown this to. Operate in the and the understanding I did have. And I knew whenever he said, bring me to the court, bring him to my courtroom, I knew that there was something legal that the enemy was using to resist God's will from being done, the depression being broken, and him being able to and free to move into his destiny. So I thought, well, there must be something there with him. And so I began to repent for his sins. I repented for any sins I could think of. I repented for any sins I felt. I repented for anything that came to mind. I just repented for everything, maybe for five, six minutes. I just did this. And I, as, as his father and as an intercessor, I took that place and began to repent. Now, let me just pause and say this. This is what intercessors do. When God gives you an assignment, you actually do for others what they cannot do for themselves until they are able to do it. That is the job of an intercessor. And so I took that position as an intercessor in his life, plus being a spiritual authority because I'm his father. And as I repented, I suddenly felt things starting to move, which was brand new to me because I'd been praying for him for two years. And I knew that something was happening in the spirit realm by my repenting for his sins. And then I heard the Lord say these words, Now you repent. For everything you've said about him in your frustration, because the accuser is taking your words and using them in the court of heaven and saying even his own father says this about him. Now that is an important secret we have to understand. When God has granted someone authority in someone else's life, their words concerning that person carry much greater weight and power, and the enemy will search your words out to see if there's anything he can use to bring accusation because you are a, an authority in that person's life. And so I had to repent for all the negative things I had said in private to his mother about, I don't understand why he don't get up. I don't understand why he won't shake free from this. I don't understand why he won't push through. I don't understand why he's just laying down. I don't understand why he won't do this, why he won't do that. And out of frustration, I had spoken these things, if you will, in private. But guess what? There is no such thing as private in the spirit realm. And so the enemy had taken those words and he had taken them into the court of heaven. And he had said, even his own father says this about him. And it was right, I had. So I had to begin to repent for the word of my testimony concerning my son that had been used by the enemy to, to uh, grant a legal reason why God could not answer the other prayers that we had been praying. That is a very, very important issue to understand. And suddenly as I did that, with tears streaming, I felt something shift. I felt something move. And then I heard the Lord say, now you prophesy his destiny. So the first thing I did, I said, Lord, you said to me, and it's written in heaven about him, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those that bring good news. And I declare he will carry the gospel. He will, his feet are beautiful. They shall be appealing and, and people shall receive and respond to him. For he is one commissioned by you to preach the good news of the kingdom. 
And I began to prophesy to him. I began to prophesy about his future, about his destiny. And then I heard the Lord say, Now, rebuke the spirit of depression. And I'll never forget it out of Ephesians chapter 5. I said, Awake thou that sleepest, and Christ shall give you light. And I began to declare and prophesy that word into his heart. And all of a sudden, I felt this major shift take place. And I thought, wow, that's different. After two years of praying, after two years of praying, that's completely different from anything I've ever sensed. Because I, I, I was endeavoring to take away the legal right of the enemy so that God as Father could now answer the prayers. A week and a half later, my phone rang. And I looked at it, and it said it was my son. And as I answered, I said, well, hello, how are you doing? And he said, Dad, I'm fine. He said, can I talk to you for a moment? I said, absolutely. And he said, I need to tell you something. He said, I don't know what happened. These were his words verbatim. I don't know what happened. But a week and a half ago, all my depression left. And he said, and I am ready to pursue and go after my destiny and what God has called me to do. And as a result of that, over a very short process of time, he went from, from feeling like he was completely disqualified. He is now in the northwestern part of the United States of America on a full-time staff as the adult pastor, having a tremendous effect in ministry with a tremendous future ahead of him. Now watch what I'm about to say. Because I accomplished in 20 minutes in the courtroom what I had not been able to do in two years on the battlefield. Wow. It's so important that we... Wow. But see, that's... You see why I'm putting this out there, guys? <laughs> Does that sound appealing to you, what he just said? You might have been praying about something for 20 years with no results or no seeming results. Well, this is probably the answer. You know? It's that big of a deal. This is, I mean, like barring the, with my salvation teaching set aside, this is probably right up there as far as one of the most important studies I've ever done. Because it wasn't, didn't want to answer the prayers. It was the enemy was resisting the prayers from being answered based on sins that had been committed that needed to be dealt with by the blood of Jesus through repentance that granted God now the legal right to answer the prayers. Mm. So that's a very personal testimony of the first time that I personally, in my own personal prayers, stepped into the courtroom of heaven and got things legally in place so that something could begin to happen. Now, we have watched our entire family shift and change as I have dealt with legal issues from our bloodline that was hindering and the enemy was using to resist God's will in and through our family line. We have watched things come into alignment and God's will began to be done. Because watch, we are not here trying to convince God Neither are we here trying to inform him. We are simply coming into an agreement with him and granting him the legal right as judge to fulfill his father's passion. Now that is an important, important word to understand. Now, in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9 and 10, I want to try to help us understand another dimension of the court. This is the second lesson 
in this process of teaching on the courts of heaven. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, he says, I watched, Daniel said, I watched till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheel of burning fire. Let me pause. It said thrones, plural, were put into place. If you go over to Revelation chapter 4, you're going to discover that there are at least 24 thrones around the throne. And those 24 thrones are occupied by what the Bible calls elders. Well, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus said that you are those to the 12 disciples, you are those who have continued with me uh, in my affliction, in my tribulation. He said, I grant you to sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So I would su- surmise that 12 of, of, these, of these thrones are occupied by the 12 apostles. And then probably the other 12 are... are uh, occupied by representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel, even though we don't know that, but it would fit the, the, the whole of Scripture, if you will. But the bottom line is these 12 thrones are occupied by those who have crowns on their head. That means that they have come out of the earth realm and they have overcome because the, the crowns belong to those who have overcome. And so these, these 24 are sitting upon these thrones. And when the Lamb is worshipped, they take their crown and they cast it at the feet of the, of, the, of the Lamb. Why are they doing this? They are in essence are saying, the only reason we have these crowns, the only reason we were overcomers is because your grace empowered us to overcome. It's not of us. Amen. It's of you. You see, that's the message that's being relayed and translated to us by the activities of heaven. But they are a part, these thrones and these who sit up on these thrones are a part of the courtroom of heaven. But then there is the throne, God's throne himself that is there. And it says in verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Talking about God who sits up on his throne. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. Again, this is consistent with the book of Revelation where you see the sea of glass and all the tribes and the nations and the tongues worshiping the Lord. And we'll get to this again, but you need to understand that worship of these tens of thousands and thousands of thousands is actually what creates the environment that allows the court system of heaven to operate. And all of this is a part of the courtroom a part of the court activity that's going on in heaven. Why do we know that? Because it says, and the court was seated and the books were open. That's interesting. The court was seated. What is the court? It's all of this combined. The court was seated. These thrones and all of his activity. The court was seated. And watch what happens. And the books were open. Now why is that important? Because obviously it's about to take courtroom activity to be able to get what's in the books, and I'm going to explain this, fleshed out into the earth. Right. Now, you got to, to really understand this, you've got to understand the books of heaven. In Psalms 139 and verse 16, David said, All my days yet fashioned and all my substance yet formed were written down in your books. In other words, David said, Before I ever existed in the planet. Right. Before I ever came into being in the earth, Mm -hmm. you actually wrote down in heaven my days and what I would accomplish. Now, that's the verse I, one of the verses I got into at the start of part one. If you can hear this, 
what my kingdom purpose was right. and what God's will for my life was to be. This is important. He said, that's actually what you did when you wrote these things in my book. So there are books in heaven that are about individuals. And every person has a book. Every person has a book that is in heaven that contains, watch this, your reason for existence, your kingdom purpose, what God puts you and allowed you to be in the earth for. But there's not only books in heaven for individuals, there's books about churches, there's books about businesses, there's books about cities, there's books about states, there's actually books about nations. We know this because in Revelation chapter 10, the Bible says that John took a book, a small book from the angel and he ate the book and then as a result of eating the book, he was commanded that he would prophesy to many nations and tribes and tongues and peoples. Why was he empowered to prophesy to nations and tribes and tongues and people? Because he had eaten the book that contained their destiny. Wow. You see, there is a destiny that has been designed by God for every nation, for every tribe, for, for every tongue of, uh, of people, for every people's group, for every individual, for every city, for every state. Let me just put it this way. If there's not a book in heaven about it, don't waste your time <laughs> upon it. Because it's irrelevant. But God has a book about... That's pretty profound if you think about that. If there's not a book in heaven written about it, don't waste your time on it. Because it's probably just vanity. And I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I haven't pursued vanity. You know, I'm just saying that's a profound statement, you know. It's been written down in heaven about everything that has a kingdom purpose attached to it. And every living person has a book in heaven about them, according to Psalms 139 and verse 16. Now, we know this is true because we see in 2 Timothy 1.9, that's a really important scripture, where Paul is telling Timothy, uh, or speaking to Timothy, about their destiny individually that was designed before, before time began. It says... It says um, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus. Watch this. Before time began. So Paul said to Timothy, purpose and grace was given to them as individuals before time began. That is so important. See, purpose and grace. See, how do you give something to something that yet exists or has not come into existence yet. This is my opinion. That literally that purpose and grace was given. In other words, it was apportioned to them before time began. Because their existence and what they were to accomplish had already been written down in a book in heaven. And had been set and established. And it was just a matter, if you will, of time before it became reality. Now it's really important because it says purpose and grace. Why is that important? Because when you discover your purpose, you will know you have discovered it. Why? Very clearly. Because of the grace that's attached to it. The grace that's attached to the purpose will testify that you have actually discovered what is written in your book and you're doing that which you were put into the earth to do. That's really important that we understand that because you will always find grace attached 
to your God-ordained purpose. How do you know you've found grace? Well, because when, you ha- when you're walking in grace, number one, you are good at what you do. Number two, there's results that are produced. You are successful. Number three, you enjoy it. It's something that you enjoy. God is not sentencing you to do something you don't enjoy. You enjoy that which you are doing because it is the purpose of God for your life that you are graced to do. Number four, others will will bear witness that, that there is a significance and an effectiveness that's happening out of you because you have discovered your purpose because there's grace attached to it. So Paul said these things were given before time began because it was written in their books in heaven. Now, the Bible says that the books, that the court was the court was seated, and the books were open. Why? Because the enemy does not want us accomplishing or fulfilling what is written in our books, and he is going to resist us on the basis of legalities. We began as a scroll in heaven, as a book in heaven that was written down. That God said, "This is what this one will do." The problem is the enemy wants to resist that because he understands that if we fulfill what is written in our books, watch what I'm about to say, then we do massive damage to the empire of his kingdom. The best way to see this is in Luke chapter 22 and verse 31 and thereafter where that Jesus says this to Peter. Simon, Simon. Satan has desired you, asked for you, that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith not fail. Now, what you probably don't know is the word desired or asked for. In the strong Concordance, when you look it up, you don't have to stretch it. You don't have to try to make it mean this. It's, it's blatant. It's clear. It says literally, Satan has demanded you be put on trial. You see, somehow or other, Satan had a concept of what Peter was supposed to do. If you can hear this, of what had been written in his book in heaven before time began. And the way, please hear this, the way Satan was going to resist Peter from living out the destiny that had been written in the books of heaven about him, from fleshing out the word in heaven about himself in the earth, was he was going to resist him through legalities, and he demanded he be put on trial. In other words, he said this, I have built a case against Peter, and I demand the right to present it in the courts of heaven, because I demand the right to present a case that would say to God, you cannot give him what's in his book, because he is disqualified based on these issues in his life and his history. That's exactly what's going on. And it's what goes on with us. The enemy comes and says, based on this one's sin, based on the sins of their bloodline, based on these issues, I say they are disqualified. But Jesus said something very powerful to Peter. But I have prayed for you. See, in other words, I have answered. Not, not, not as the Son of God, because he was doing nothing as the Son of God at that point. He was doing this as a mortal man filled with God. I'll get to that later. But the bottom line, he said, I have answered these accusations so that 
There is no longer an accusation standing against you. And yeah, Peter, you're going to go through a difficult place, but I have gotten a verdict from the court of heaven, and you will get what's in your book. You will flesh it out, and you will do massive damage to the empire of Satan. And he, in fact, did. He, in fact, did. But I want you to hear this. The enemy wants to stop us from being able to get what's in our book. And he resists us on the basis of legalities and building. He, he most likely knows what's in our books. So, you know, the higher you're calling too, you know. <laughs> and then there's also the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And, and I believe that the book would represent like the perfect will of God acceptable good pleasing perfect you know and most likely the the perfect will would represent what's written in your book and he's trying everything he can do to make sure you do not fulfill that against us that he demands the right to present in the courts of heaven it's really important <laughs> that we understand that now to fully get that let me explain something to you in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30, Jesus, or, or the, the, the Apostle Paul said this. He says, Whom he foreknew, he predestined. And whom he predestined, he called. And whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he glorified. See, what's he saying there? He's giving us five stages that every one of us go through that fulfill their destiny. Now, the, the, the sad issue is that so many people never fulfill their destiny. But there are five stages we will go through if we fulfill our destiny. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. Let me explain these stages to you because they, they play into the books that were written about us and into the process in the courts of heaven that grants God the legal right to grant us the right to step into all that has been ordained for us from heaven. There was a council in heaven, and before we existed, there were decisions made about us. We were, if you will, foreknew. We were foreknown in heaven before we existed. Now, out of the, the next step, it says, and whom he foreknew, what happened? He predestined. What is that? That's where those decisions were written down in a book. You see, when you move from foreknowledge and being foreknown to being predestined, it's where God wrote the decisions down about us. In other words, Robert Henderson will exist. He will be born to these parents. He will accomplish this. He will have, see this. He will be involved here, be involved here. And all of a sudden, my kingdom purpose for existence was written down, which is what David said, my, my days yet unfashioned and my substance yet unformed were written down in your book because it moved from foreknowledge to predestination the moment it was written in a book. That's when it was established. Decisions were made in councils, but then those decisions were written in a book and things became predestined. Why is that important? Because predestined is not we are a puppet on a chain. Predestined is this is the thought out established plan for my purpose, for, my, for the will of God, for my destiny. And I get to choose whether I will do it or not. Mm -hmm. 
But if I come into an agreement with it, the reason I exist will have fulfillment and purpose attached to it. So the council actually became established from foreknowledge into predestination when it was written in a book. All of those happened. Those two things happened before time began. Now notice the thing. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. Now what is that? That's where we began to get glimpses of what's been written down in the book of heaven about us. Listen, you don't get everything at once. You begin to get glimpses of what God wrote in the books about you before time began. Mm. It's, it's so important yeah. that we understand that. Or we dismiss those glimpses when they come to us, not realizing God is helping us to see and understand. This is probably the fifth or sixth time I've listened to this. And every time I listen to these CDs, and it's a four, just a four-part thing. I, I just so happen to find it on Amazon. You might be able to find them up there. Robert Henderson, uh, operating in the courts of heaven. Because I wanted something I could listen to when I was driving. And I get more out of it every single time. I get some new like nugget every single time I listen to these. And he just does such a good job of teaching this and the destiny and actually what was established for us before time began. So the way you know what's in your book and what you're called to is by looking inside your heart. Because yes. whatever he wrote in the book of heaven, he actually also wrote down in your heart. Yes. So instead of looking on the outside, trying to discern and figure out what you should do, or looking and running for the next prophecy, I challenge you to look in your heart. Now this isn't... The heart is desperately wicked. And this is, this is things that you've yearned for. And you didn't know why you've yearned for them. Maybe your whole life. Like when the Lord showed me that vision when I was a little kid. Uh, of me like I was behind this big shield. It was I was in this cave. And I was... Um, there was a fire-breathing dragon in front of me in this cave. I believe it was red. And it had, I mean, and it was just breathing out fire toward me. And it was wrapping around the shield. All, But it couldn't touch me. It couldn't touch me at all. And um, I was like behind it, like, you know, like bracing behind it. And I... I you know, at the time, I, I don't know, like, if I was shown, was I still a little kid then? Was was I a grown man? I don't really remember that part. I remember it was me. And I'm not saying that because I'm trying to say I'm Mr. Whatever. I, I'm just telling you that did happen to me when I was a little kid. And I never had a clue what it meant. Um, I, I didn't know. I, I wasn't, I was 20 years from even getting saved at that point probably when i was shown that or i don't know exactly why I, i'm pretty sure i was uh we just moved to florida from ohio so i would have been like four or five i'm pretty sure when i was shown that and um i've never forgot it i've never i've never forgotten i think that's what the, he's talking about these glimpses of what your your destiny would be if 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 you follow in 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 the will of god and, and that you're actually following in whatever's written about your books ultimately 
he you can be shown these things you might have something like i've yearned to do this and i don't really know why you may not even think you have a talent in that area yet you actually may have a hidden talent in that area remember the bible says the gifts and callings of god are without repentance so if you have a calling from god and you're not sure and you and you think in in your own logical mind there's no way i could fulfill that calling yeah but understand god is the god of the universe he can get you there like what um diane was saying in the first one like when the grid goes down don't worry about it god can still connect us we don't need phones he can still connect us in the spirit world who knows how that's gonna look i don't know but i believe it i wonder if, if god can create the universe there's nothing he can't do if satan could build the 5g network and all the satellites and all the other garbage that he's doing right now and all the other satanic supposed kill grid well how much greater can god operate how much how much more grandiose can god be than whatever satan and remember when she said god just laughs at this this whole thing he's he's god's literally looking down and laughing at all these schemes and because satan really thinks he's gonna i don't know if he really has convinced himself into that or not thinks he's gonna win and he's just trying desperately to build all the satanic infrastructure in order to do it and see this is why we need to take our places in the body of christ in the courts of heaven so that we can issue god's righteous judgments against this let's say 5g let's say the vaccine agenda let's say the child sex trafficking all the pedophilia all the lies that go on in, in christianity with all the um these um, luciferian ministers that are actually luciferians but yet they say they're god god's man or whatever like all these televangelists and all these people at the head of these ministries and these denominations god wants us to render and issue judgments against this wickedness so that the body of christ is not deceived and so that humanity is and that all men would see and fear and declare the work of god that they would wisely consider of god's doing and the righteous would be glad in the lord and trust in him and all the upright in heart would glory according to psalm 64 which i've done a whole teaching on if you want to know about that so i'm telling you man this is this is so incredibly important what we're covering today whatever he wrote in your book he also has written down in your heart. Mm. And you will discover the <laughs> destiny and the purpose of yeah. God by, by looking in your heart. You will get glimpses to the call of God. So the counsel is the foreknowledge. It's written down in the book. He becomes predestined. Now God starts graciously giving us glimpses of it. But then notice the next stage. And whom he called, he justified. Now the word justified means to declare to be innocent and at its core it has legal connotations yes so god understood the thing the enemy is going to use to resist us from getting what's in our book is he is going to bring railing accusations against us the scripture says that he makes accusations against us day and night they are perpetual and so literally the bible says that Whoever has a destiny written down in the book, which is all of us, and we begin to get glimpses of it and understand it, instead of us being able to step into it freely, the enemy is going to build cases against us like he did Peter to try to stop us from getting what's in our book. But watch what it says. Whom he called, he justified. So by taking the blood of Jesus, 
by taking the voices of heaven and answering the accusations, God is actually legally able to render us justified, which brings to the final place. It says, whom he justified, he glorified. He glorified. Now, being glorified doesn't mean we get to go to heaven and stand in a glorified body in a glorified state, even though that will happen. But I like the term that Lance Wall now uses, which is the term convergence. That everything converges together, and the term glorified in this setting literally to me implies not getting to stand in heaven, but we have now qualified ourselves to step into the full destiny that we were made for, and that we are fulfilling what was written in the books of heaven about us mm -hmm. before time began. Mm. When we know how to, to bring our case before the courts of heaven, and present them in, in heaven as Jesus did in behalf of Peter. When we know how to do that, then we answer the accusations. We come to a place of being justified and innocent, if you will, so God can release to us all that has been written about us before time again. That's for us personally, and that's also for cities, states, and nations, and anything that has a book written about it in heaven wants to teach us how to do this because we need to get out of heaven, out of the scrolls of heaven, everything that's been written about different realms in the earth. Amen. Let me pray. Father, I decree over your people today, Lord, that you are going to help us answer accusations, that we will go through the stages of being of foreknowledge, of predestined, of called. Lord, we will come into the realm of being justified because of what you have done for us on the cross, Lord Jesus. And we will step into our glorified position and place to live out fully all that's been written in the courts of heaven about us. Father, so that we can do massive damage to the empires of Satan and see a manifestation of, the, of heaven and the kingdom of heaven coming into earth. Lord, I just speak. I say, even as I'm praying this, I sense a fresh wind coming into the souls of your people that is bringing encouragement because they're recognizing, Lord, that all that you did for us on the cross is what we need to answer every accusation so that we can fulfill what is written about about us in the books. We thank you for this and we bless this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you. Amen. So that's part one of operating in the courts of heaven. And um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, I want to try to get this up tonight here. No PDF for this study. Like I said, it's just going to be like, a, like the stuff I would put in table of contents. Um, and the two different ways you can play the audios. Well, there's other ways too, I guess. Uh, that's what we're going to be doing for this particular study. And um, uh, I, I don't, I'm not 100% sure if I'll, I'll get to another audio this Sunday. That's a lot to, to bite off, but um, uh, possibly, maybe. Anyway, God bless you and Lord willing, we'll see you in the next study.